Chapter Three, Section Five of the Greek View of Life by Goldsworthy Lowes Dickinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Chapter Three, Section Five Greek Ethics Identification of the Aesthetic and Ethical Points of View and as with the excellence of the body so with that of the soul the conception that dominated the mind of the greeks was primarily aesthetic in speaking of their religion we have already remarked that they had no sense of sin and we may now add that they had no sense of duty moral virtue they conceived not as obedience to an external law a sacrifice of the natural man to a power that in a sense is alien to himself but rather as the tempering into due proportion of the elements of which human nature is composed the good man was the man who was beautiful beautiful in soul virtue says plato will be a kind of health and beauty and good habit of the soul and vice will be a disease and deformity and sickness of it it follows that it is as natural to seek virtue and to avoid vice as to seek health and to avoid disease there is no question of a struggle between opposite principles the distinction of good and evil is one of order or confusion among elements which in themselves are neither good nor bad this conception of virtue we find expressed in many forms but always with the same underlying idea a favourite watchword with the greeks is the middle or mean the exact point of rightness between two extremes nothing in excess was a motto inscribed over the temple of delphi and none could be more characteristic of the ideal of these lovers of proportion aristotle indeed has made it the basis of his whole theory of ethics in his conception virtue is the mean vice the excess lying on either side courage for example the mean between foolhardiness and cowardice temperance between incontinence and insensibility generosity between extravagance and meanness the various phases of feeling and the various kinds of action he analyses minutely on this principle understanding always by the mean that which adapts itself in the due proportion to the circumstances and requirements of every case the interest of this view for us lies in its assumption that it is not passions or desires in themselves that must be regarded as bad 
but only their disproportional or misdirected indulgence let us take for example the case of the pleasures of sense the puritan's rule is to abjure them altogether to him they are absolutely wrong in themselves apart from all considerations of time and place aristotle on the contrary enjoins not renunciation but temperance and defines the temperate man as one who holds a mean position in respect of pleasures he takes no pleasure in the things in which the licentious man takes most pleasure he rather dislikes them nor does he take pleasure at all in wrong things nor an excessive pleasure in anything that is pleasant nor is he pained at the absence of such things nor does he desire them except perhaps in moderation nor does he desire them more than is right or at the wrong time and so on but he will be eager in a moderate and right spirit for all such things as are pleasant and at the same time conducive to health or to a sound bodily condition and for all other pleasures so long as they are not prejudicial to these or inconsistent with noble conduct or extravagant beyond his means for unless a person limits himself in this way he affects such pleasures more than is right whereas the temperate man follows the guidance of right reason as another illustration of this point of view we may take the case of anger the christian rule is never to resent an injury but rather in the new testament phrase to turn the other cheek aristotle while blaming the man who is unduly passionate blames equally the man who is insensitive the thing to aim at is to be angry on the proper occasions and with the proper people in the proper manner and for the proper length of time and in this and all other cases the definition of what is proper must be left to the determination of the sensible man thus in place of a series of hard and fast rules a rigid and uncompromising distinction of acts and affections into good and bad the former to be absolutely chosen and the latter absolutely eschewed aristotle presents us with the general type of a subtle and shifting problem the solution of which must be worked out afresh by each individual in each particular case conduct to him is a free and living creature and not a machine controlled by fixed laws every life is a work of art shaped by the man who lives it according to the faculty of the artist will be the quality of his work 
and no general rules can supply the place of his own direct perception at every turn the good is the right proportion the right manner and occasion the bad is all that varies from this right but the elements of human nature in themselves are neither good nor bad they are merely the raw material out of which the one or the other may be shaped the idea thus formulated by aristotle is typically greek in another form it is the basis of the ethical philosophy of plato who habitually regards virtue as a kind of order the virtue of each thing he says whether body or soul instrument or creature when given to them in the best way comes to them not by chance but as the result of the order and truth and art which are imparted to them and the conception here indicated is worked out in detail in his republic there after distinguishing in the soul three principles or powers reason passion and desire he defines justice as the maintenance among them of their proper mutual relation each moving in its own place and doing its appropriate work as is or should be the case with the different classes in a state the just man will not permit the several principles within him to do any work but their own nor allow the distinct classes in his soul to interfere with each other but will really set his house in order and having gained the mastery over himself will so regulate his own character as to be on good terms with himself and to set those three principles in tune together as if they were verily three chords of a harmony a higher and a lower and a middle and whatever may lie between these and after he has bound all these together and reduced the many elements of his nature to a real unity as a temperate and duly harmonized man he will then at length proceed to do whatever he may have to do plato it is true in other parts of his work approaches more closely to the dualistic conception of an absolute opposition between good and bad principles in man yet even so he never altogether abandons that aesthetic point of view which looks to the establishment of order among the conflicting principles rather than to the annihilation of one by the other in an internecine conflict the point may be illustrated by the following passage where the two horses represent respectively the elements of fleshly desire and spiritual passion while the charioteer stands for the controlling reason and where it will be noticed the ultimate harmony is achieved not by the complete eradication of desire 
but by its due subordination to the higher principle even plato the most ascetic of the greeks is a greek first and an ascetic afterwards of the nature of the soul though her true form be ever a theme of large and more than mortal discourse let me speak briefly and in a figure and let the figure be composite a pair of winged horses and a charioteer now the winged horses and the charioteers of the gods are all of them noble and of noble descent but those of other races are mixed the human charioteer drives his in a pair and one of them is noble and of noble breed and the other is ignoble and of ignoble breed and the driving of them of necessity gives a great deal of trouble to him the right-hand horse is upright and cleanly made he has a lofty neck and an aquiline nose his colour is white and his eyes dark he is a lover of honour and modesty and temperance and the follower of true glory he needs no touch of the whip but is guided by word and admonition only the other is a crooked lumbering animal put together anyhow he has a short thick neck he is flat-faced and of a dark colour with grey eyes and blood-red complexion the mate of insolence and pride shag-eared and deaf hardly yielding to whip and spur now when the charioteer beholds the vision of love and has his whole soul warmed through sense and is full of the prickings and ticklings of desire the obedient steed then as always under the government of shame refrains from leaping on the beloved but the other heedless of the blows of the whip plunges and runs away giving all manner of trouble to his companion and the charioteer whom he forces to approach the beloved and to remember the joys of love they at first indignantly oppose him and will not be urged on to do terrible and unlawful deeds but at last when he persists in plaguing them they yield and agree to do as he bids them and now they are at the spot and behold the flashing beauty of the beloved which when the charioteer sees his memory is carried to the true beauty whom he beholds in company with modesty like an image placed upon a holy pedestal he sees her but he is afraid and falls backwards in adoration and by his fall is compelled to pull back the reins with such violence as to bring both the steeds on their haunches 
the one willing and unresisting the unruly one very unwilling and when they have gone back a little the one is overcome with shame and wonder and his whole soul is bathed in perspiration the other when the pain is over which the bridle and the fall had given him having with difficulty taken breath is full of wrath and reproaches which he heaps upon the charioteer and his fellow steed for want of courage and manhood declaring that they have been false to their agreement and guilty of desertion again they refuse and again he urges them on and will scarce yield to their prayer that he would wait until another time when the appointed hour comes they make as if they had forgotten and he reminds them fighting and neighing and dragging them on until at length he on the same thoughts intent forces them to draw near again and when they are near he stoops his head and puts up his tail and takes the bit in his teeth and pulls shamelessly then the charioteer is worse off than ever he falls back like a racer at the barrier and with a still more violent wrench drags the bit out of the teeth of the wild steed and covers his abusive jaws and tongue with blood and forces his legs and haunches to the ground and punishes him sorely and when this has happened several times and the villain has ceased from his wanton way he is tamed and humbled and follows the will of the charioteer and when he sees the beautiful one he is ready to die of fear and from that time forward the soul of the lover follows the beloved in modesty and holy fear even from this passage in spite of its dualistic hypothesis but far more clearly from the whole tenor of his work we may perceive that plato's description of virtue as an order of the soul is prompted by the same conception characteristically greek as aristotle's account of virtue as a mean the view as we said at the beginning is properly aesthetic rather than moral it regards life less as a battle between two contending principles in which victory means the annihilation of the one the altogether bad by the other the altogether good than as the maintenance of a balance between elements neutral in themselves but capable according as their relations are rightly ordered or the reverse of producing either that harmony which is called virtue or that discord which is called vice such being the conception of virtue characteristic of the greeks 
it follows that the motive to pursue it can hardly have presented itself to them in the form of what we call the sense of duty for duty emphasizes self-repression against the desires of man it sets a law of prohibition a law which is not conceived as that of his own complete nature asserting against a partial or disproportioned development the balance and totality of the ideal but rather as a rule imposed from without by a power distinct from himself for the mortification not the perfecting of his natural impulses and aims duty emphasizes self-repression the greek view emphasized self-development that health and beauty and good habit of the soul which is plato's ideal is as much its own recommendation to the natural man as is the health and beauty of the body vice on this view is condemned because it is a frustration of nature virtue praised because it is her fulfilment and the motive throughout is simply that passion to realize oneself which is commonly acknowledged as sufficient in the case of physical development and which appeared sufficient to the greeks in the case of the development of the soul End of chapter 3, section 5 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey